Welcome to the Titans of Industry show, and today we have a no-holds-barred interview. If you've never heard of James Colbert, uh, this is going to be a mind-boggling interview for you. And if you have, prepare for maximum impact because we have some great questions lined up. James Colbert, the Colbert Report, is joining me, and I get tickled just thinking about the incredible subjects that we will discuss today. James, first of all, how are you, sir? I'm very good. Thank you very much for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, definitely. Uh, we're, we're actually uh, some time zones away from each other. It's 5.30 p.m. where I'm at Tuesday. It's 9.30 a.m. where you're at uh, Wednesday. But uh, we're not that uh, far apart in terms of our worldviews and uh, where we kind of see uh, the economy going and just in general what's going on right now in, in the world. And I want to kind of ask you a very open question because this is a subject that you've been um, investigating your, your the better part of your adult life. Is there a new world order? Yes, that is an excellent question, and it is a very broad question. In some ways, it is the central question of my entire work at the Corbett Report that I've been doing now for 11 years. So it is uh, a question that preoccupies me. I think the answer is self-evidently yes, and self-evidently on two different levels. There's the first order of approaching this question, which is really from just the semantic, the, the bare bones, at what does this actually mean? And it's it's a pretty, uh, I would say, uncontentious claim. There is a world order that exists, and we are transitioning into a different type of world order. Therefore, by definition, I would say there is a new world order on the way. Uh, the only question is, what does that new world order look like? But of course, this phrase has a lot of connotations in people's minds because it has been associated with conspiracy uh, thinking for a long time. And there's there's a rich pedigree to this phrase that goes back at least a century to uh, writers like H.G. Wells, who wrote about the New World Order uh, back at that time, talking about his uh, vision of basically a technocratic society that was going to be ruled over by by scientists and engineers and people who knew what they were doing and that therefore could order society in the way that it needed to be ordered, i.e. a new world order. Uh, that, of course, that phrase was also used uh, by Hitler and the Nazis and the idea of creating a new world order of uh, Nazi rule, the Thousand Year Reich. Uh, so it went out of uh, went out of use, I would say, in that uh, post-World it's War II It's also era. written on, on, on some of the dollar bills, is that correct? Uh, Novus Ordo Seclorum, is it? Uh, a new, secli- new uh, secular age, is it? Or something along those lines. Uh, not yes. quite a direct translation, but uh, I think it swirls around in the same occultic context in that case. And then, of course, it was revived, I think, most notably by George H.W. Bush back at the time of the uh, first Gulf War, where we were talking about a new world order and uh, dragging the, 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 the nations of the world out of the age of barbarism and into a, a one where we respect the rule of law. Um, but a lot of people saw some dark undertones in that uh, message. And of course, well, we've seen the way that the world has unfolded since that time. So it has a lot of baggage, this term. And I don't want to make it sound like this term is the be-all and end-all of how to understand the world itself. But again, I think it's uncontentious. We are moving into a new world order. And uh, clearly, we've seen the breakdown of the post-World War II Pax Americana security establishment arrangement that's that's held uh, for the better part of uh, a century at this point. Um, and we're seeing that transition right now. And everyone is now sort of 
scratching their heads and wondering what's coming next from Team Trump or, you know, how will China react? What's what's Kim doing? What's what's Vladimir Putin doing? All of these things. I, I think it's very much in the zeitgeist that people understand we are moving to a different world order. The only question is, what kind are we going to uh, achieve? So what what is the new world order and, and, and is the way you see it? And what is the sinister um, philosophy or theory or strategy behind it? And who is... The, uh, who are the key players? Well, I think essentially the, the New World Order in the formulation of what, when it comes out of the mouths of people like George H.W. Bush or what have you, is uh, fundamentally it's a, it's a globalist ideology which believes in a one world government um, and achieving a one world government, but not the kind of fluffy, uh, happy, uh, everyone will come together in peace kind of uh, world government that some people I think still continue to believe when they, they hear the, the idea, the, the mention of that. I think it's more the idea along the lines maybe of what H.G. Wells was proposing, a sort of technocratic state ordered by a very few elite at the top who basically govern and structure society underneath them. Uh, in Wells's vision, it was going to be the engineers and scientists who were basically going to work out precisely what needed to be done and how to do it because they're, they're the scientists and engineers. That's what they can do. Um, but I think in the the globalist mindset of, uh, well, the, the the Council on Foreign Relations and bodies like this that do exert exorbitant, uh, exorbitant amounts of power over the foreign policy of the United States and thereby the sort of the, the default world order. Uh, this is going to be more ordered and organized by the ultra... I mean, I, I don't even think wealthy is quite the right word for it because that implies these are people who in the end, care about the uh, dollars and cents in their bank account. No, these are the people who I think have their uh, uh, hands on the levers of power to actually, for example, create the money itself uh, using the U.S. Federal Reserve System or the central banks in in the various nations of the uh, Bank for International Settlements order. So there are people who uh, I think are simply lusting after what has always and throughout human history been the goal of every tyrant and every conqueror, which is to create, yes, a world government, or at least a, a, a globe-spanning regional a government of some sort, depending on what era we're talking about, but under the control of a very few, a ruling oligarchy, essentially. And I think that's the vision we're moving towards. And uh, overlaid on top of that is this technocratic paradigm that is coming into view whereby we are starting to confront new technologies with autonomous uh, 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 robots and things like this and and uh, and sur- constant 24-7 surveillance and now we're talking about genetic engineering and things that literally would have been impossible to even fathom or even imagine in any other time in human history are now becoming possible uh, in the hands of a very few people who want to control the mass of humanity. I think that's a very scary prospect. And that's the type of new world order that I think we all, or <laughs> I would imagine 99.99999% of humanity ultimately wants to avoid. Sure. And, and you know, uh, it's very true that uh, technology as is, is it advances and becomes as humans, you know, break more of nature's, uh, find out more nature's rules and laws, and, and find out ways to send uh, send satellites to to outer space and do all kinds of amazing things. If we don't have the wisdom to use them in the right way, and we use them in the in the wrong way, and we and we uh, allow people that have uh, other agendas to uh, to have control, then that is a very um, unique situation that uh, that hasn't uh, been the case with uh, 
you know, rulers of five, six, seven hundred years ago where they wanted to do something, it would take them a lifetime to achieve. Now you can wipe out uh, countries, nations, continents uh, in a matter of days with some of these weapons that are out there. So definitely more power to the people in power uh, than ever before. Uh, what do you make of the of the race for global dominance between East and West? What, what's really going on between the US and China and European? Because obviously China and the US have uh, played this hot potato game where China buys American debt and in return it allows the US to, to fund huge deficits and uh, build up uh, China's industrial um, mm. hub and it looks like ch- the Chinese no longer need Americans uh, for consumption. They have internal consumption. They can, uh, uh, they're moving into a more robust economy. And this is kind of tilting the odds in their favor. They're going to have a bigger GDP in a few years, a, bill, a bigger military in about 15, 20 years. Um, obviously, this will impact the, the dollar, the, the, the way that the U.S. can print money. What is really going on behind the scenes? Should we fear a physical war, a cyber war, or are there too many rational heads involved to um, to not take us into any sort of a um, sustained war environment or a conflict? Well, this is an extremely important and extremely large topic that I've cover- covered at great length um, for the last several years. I've been looking at the development of this basically rise of the 21st century uh, great power narrative. The 20th century obviously dominated, at least the latter part of the 20th century, dominated by the struggle between the uh, U.S. or Pax Americana and the Soviet Union. And I think the 21st century likely to be dominated by some version of some sort of Cold War between, again, the West generally, however that uh, is defined and probably led by the U.S., at at least at this point, um, versus the rise of China as a competing global power. And we're seeing that in all sorts of different facets, economically and financially, as well as increasingly militarily and geopolitically, with some of the developments, for example, in the South China Sea. So, um, And I've talked about this uh, before in the context of the parallels that we're seeing to the uh, World War I, where we had the world's indisputable great naval power, the British, who were a, at that time uh, somewhat waning or flagging in their, uh, in their world-conquering status, uh, coming up against a rising power, Germany, and we saw where that ultimately led the world. Um, and I think we're seeing a lot of parallels right now with the sort of waning or flagging uh, American empire and the rise of a Chinese competitor. And that's worrying for a number of reasons, because as you say, of course, military conflict is often, in fact, if we look at this, uh, there's uh, historians have called it the Thucydides trap. And uh, basically, it's every time that there is a rising power that is threatening the dominance of a uh, an established power. Uh, it's not every single time, but in the vast majority of cases in human history where that has occurred, there has been a great war. So um, that is the path that we are on. But there is a deeper level of analysis to this. And that's what I get into and try to stress in my work. Uh, if, for example, I did a podcast episode on China and the New World Order. Uh, I've written articles on the great decoupling, how the West is engineering its own downfall and phony opposition, the truth about the BRICS. Essentially, I think that there is a deeper level here in which, yes, there is a a sort of chess game that's going on between the U.S. and China right now, and they're struggling for dominance militarily and economically and uh, geopolitically, but there is a level in which these two two powers are 
connected or there are conspiring behind the scenes. And I, I talk about that in the Chinese example specifically in great detail in my China and the New World Order podcast, where I talk about, um, for example, I mean, obviously the opening of relations under Nixon was essentially spearheaded by Henry Kissinger, who of course preceded Nixon to China in 1971, Kissinger acting as the emissary of David Rockefeller. The Rockefellers having a long history in China specifically, going back over a century, where they've been heavily invested in that country in various ways. And uh, then it was no surprise, really, that uh, during the the, uh, uh, the the capitalist road era of Deng Xiaoping back in the late 70s, early 80s, was again spearheaded by the Rockefellers with uh, Rong Yi Ren, the chairman of CIDIC, meeting with David Rockefeller in Manhattan at the Chase Manhattan Bank Complex in 1980. Um, to basically hammer out an agreement um, between Chase and Siddick and the Bank of China and the various uh, specialists and technical personnel who were there to try to hammer out various economic, uh, well, first financial and then economic arrangements between the U.S. and China. And from that point, we saw the, the rise, the development of China on the path that it's at now. It's not that China just suddenly became a, uh, a world economic power. It's It's been carefully constructed over the past few decades. And and people have some sense of that. They've, of course, seen the, the outsourcing of American industry to China um, as as part of this, and that's what obviously these these trade war or the, whatever it, it is at this moment uh, it, that's currently brewing is centering around. But again, this is part of a much deeper and I think more complex plan that ultimately I think. Like when you actually study the real history of the late 20th century Cold War between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, you find that there were uh, essentially the U.S. was propping up the Soviet Union as a type of um, uh, a foil, I suppose, um, to in some in some sense justify American presence in the world, and also as a as a sort of founding narrative that uh, that would uh, uh, motivate the people. I think we're looking at the development of a similar Cold War type scenario here where it's going to be essentially uh, a type of arrangement between not the people who are in positions of political quote-unquote power the political puppets on the stage but the the financial and economic powers behind them are engineering this type of uh, uh, cold war scenario um, where ultimately i am not sure i don't think at this point it even particularly matters to these people in positions of power whether or not the power ends up in the u.s staying in the u.s or whether the center of global power actually shifts to china in fact we've seen a lot of preparations by people like george soros and morris strong for example moving to china at the end of his life um, as a good globalist puppet for the United Nations. So we've seen a lot of maneuvers um, to basically position China into the position it's in right now. And I think that's the more important aspect of all of this, because yes, there there are struggles taking place and those very well could lead to real military actions as they did, for example, in World War One. But uh, I think ultimately at the higher order, the higher level of this, uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, conspiring going on that that in fact is putting China into this position to be a challenge to U.S. hegemony. Now we'll get later to um, to discuss more about uh, how powerful or how dominant uh, one family like the Rockefeller can be in shifting world events because many people have different views with regards to how powerful can one family or can uh, uh, just a few people be in really dictating world events and uh, I think it's it's very important to to get your take on this 
but before we do that, can I ask you about manipulations and uh, some ideas that people have that the U.S. elections, for example, could be rigged or manipulated somehow uh, in terms of even the ballots? And, and the same question applies to the gold trading uh, manipulation scheme or the price suppression schemes that people have been talking about for years. Is this – how real is it and, and to what extent – have you found proof uh, of both? Well, I think it's, again, this is one of those things where we just have to apply a, a tiny bit of common sense. We know that uh, that corporations are willing to spend all sorts of money and do all sorts of things to ensure their, their market dominance going forward. So it would be pretty almost unfathomable that something as important, or at least seemingly important, as who is in the position of political power in the country at any given time would be left up completely to chance, and there would be no involvement of any outside interests in making sure that it went one way or another. Uh, Couldn't I think agree that, more. Yeah, that would be extremely naive, um, just from that level of, of sort of um, a priori analysis. When you actually look into it, and you look into, for example, the voting machine technology, there's been obviously a lot of work on this in recent, uh, in the last decade or two, but uh, of course we've even had whistleblowers talking about how they helped to rig the elections in various uh, ways for, for various candidates, um, and I can't remember the name of the, probably the most uh, uh, um, uh, the, the most famous whistleblower uh, off the top of my head, but uh, I do remember the court testimony. I can even see it in my head. It's on YouTube somewhere where he's talking about how he helped to rig uh, the, the voting machines uh, for a candidate. I believe in the 2004 uh, federal elections, but I, I'd have to... I review all that. I have talked about it before on my site. So there are obviously there are a lot of ways that uh, that vote voting and elections can and are manipulated. And gold price manipulation is again something that I've talked about uh, quite a bit in the past. Um, essentially, it boils down to the the difference between actual, real, physical in your hand gold and the paper gold, which is being traded as basically symbols of that of that money. And uh, and the that d discrepancy um, accounts for the ability to push down prices at any given time. I did interview Bill Murphy of Gata.org on this subject, but that was eight years ago now. Now that I'm looking at my archive, it's been eight years since I talked to him. So maybe that conversation needs updating. But I think the, the fundamental principles are still there. And at that time, we were talking about the um, JP Morgan manipulation of the gold market that was being exposed by whistleblower Andrew McGuire, who I believe, if I remember, serves correctly was hit by a car in London shortly after becoming a whistleblower uh, in a interesting quote-unquote accident so uh, these are the types of things that happen to people who try to expose the ways that the uh, the big money powers um, uh, manipulate the markets but again I think it, it, there there's no question in fact uh, just in the last few years we've seen of course the actual London gold fix which is what it was literally called uh, coming into disrepute because of the way they were uh, gasp shock horror who would have guessed it fixing the gold market so again this type of manipulation isn't even a conspiracy theory anymore it's a really con proven conspiracy fact. Very interesting. Um, okay, let's let's jump into the hottest term, obviously uh, in 2018, and starting back in 2017, uh, and it's called the deep state. What do you see uh, is the deep state? What is it to you? 
Yes, that's a good question, because I think what it is to me is probably different than the way that it's being used in the mainstream right now. I wrote about this in uh, January of 2016, because at that time I was seeing the term deep state coming up over and over in a lot of surprisingly mainstream sources. Uh, There was a book, Deep State Inside the Government Secrecy Industry. There was a book called The Deep State, The Fall of the Constitution and the Rise of a Shadow Government. Uh, Salon.com was uh, writing about uh, the deep state. Bill Moyers had a uh, a, a breakdown of the anatomy of the deep state on his website. The Boston Globe and the New York Times had articles about the deep state. So suddenly, after decades of this term uh, being used, I believe the term was coined by Peter Dale Scott, but if not, at least he was one, I, th- I think, of the pioneer researchers in this area talking about the way that there is a, I suppose it's often called a shadow government or or a uh, a, a continuous state behind the scenes of the partisan political game that people uh, play every few years when they go to cast uh, their votes in uh, the rigged elections, uh, there there is obviously a continuity of power. What is that continuity of power? Who is involved in that? Well, how does it operate? Those are the types of questions that people like Peter Dale Scott were examining for decades, almost completely ignored by the mainstream. Suddenly, in the last couple of years, we've seen this term become a mainstream term. But unfortunately, it's specifically in the context I think of this Trump presidency and is the Trump administration fighting the deep state or are they part of the deep state or what's going on here? And I think that um, boils it down to uh, altogether too simplistic a thing. I think ultimately the deep state uh, does exist. Absolutely, it does exist, as do deep events, which is what Peter Dale Scott uh, terms such events as JFK assassination or the 9-11 events. These are things that are obviously that, that have... Um, uh, elements of deep state um, intrigue behind them. Um, and they, they, they really only make sense uh, from that level of analysis. And I think that's the most, more important part of this, rather than the, the way that this impinges on the political puppet system, the, oh, it's the Republicans versus the deep state. No, it's the Democrats versus the deep state. No, it's the deep state versus, I think, the majority of humanity. And again, I think this goes back ultimately to what I was talking about earlier with regards to the the New World Order, the consolidation of world government in the hands of a very few oligarchs. I think essentially the deep state is the mechanism by which the oligarchs control the economic, geopolitical, and military power of a state like the United States. And uh, unless we see the bigger history of this and the way it's unfolded, uh, I think we run the risk of um, basically doing a disservice to the term, as I think is the case with a lot of these stories that are coming out right now. Very interesting. What are some measures that people can take to protect their freedoms, their privacy, and and their rights um, as you see it with what's going on right now with governments and the way that that is just being plowed and plowed on the middle class, on the on the, the on the working class, and uh, you know there's no end to it. We are reaching a point where uh, you know that it doesn't even uh, mean anything in terms of numbers. It's it's just so colossal, and I want to people want to understand how they can create barriers so that the government cannot screw with them. 
Well, for me, it always comes down to things that we can actually enact, things that we can change and handle in the real world, in the same way that if you don't have the physical gold in your hand, then you don't really have the gold, and it can be price manipulated. In the same way, if we are not exercising our freedoms ourselves, then we don't really have those freedoms. So um, rather than looking at the gigantic unfolding geopolitical stage and, you know, China and North Korea and the U.S. and things that ultimately you and I have, uh, if not zero, at least as close to zero as statistically possible influence over, there are things that we can and in fact do every single day that either furthers us into the technocratic police state nightmare society that we don't want or steers us away from that. And those are the things that we actually do when we interact with and transact with the people around us. So taking the power back into our own hands in terms of something as fundamental as choosing what we eat or what we will not eat, what we will not put in our bodies. We are the ones that are ultimately in control of the rollout of this uh, genetically modified uh, food agenda, whether you're a supporter of GMO or against it, um, it, it, the the point is that we are the ones that are making the choices that will either help to foster that and and to grow that economy or to grow the counter economy. And so it, for me, those it always comes down to those types of choices. We willingly at this point are uh, knowing full well that all of these technologies, these fondle slabs, the, you know, the iPhones and Androids and what have you, and, and the, the computers are surveilling us and taking all our data and and sharing it at all times, we are willingly buying into that system and willingly using these devices and willingly putting more and more of our our personal data and our our time and attention and energy into these devices. Well, we also have the power to turn away from that or to to use it in a different way or to, uh, to, to draw lines in the sand and say, well, I'm not going to do this with this technology. Again, it comes down to the things that we can actually do. So on that note, I've talked, for example, at great length about uh, agorism, which I think is uh, the interesting way of of trying to combat these these gigantic, seemingly monolithic, how can we ever combat them economic powers? It's by interacting with the people around us in ways whether or not they are allowed and inscribed by government or whether it involves working under the table and, uh, and bypassing Uncle Sam when he comes uh, looking for his cut or his pound of flesh at tax time. Those types of things can and really could have a fundamental difference in the way that uh, our society works and functions because the only way to really and effectively rule over an entire population is to get them to rule themselves uh, in their own minds at the very least. If people believe that they are helpless servants of an agenda, that there's nothing that can be done about, so they just have to go along to get along, well, that leads to a society that is controlled and controllable. But a society of free individuals who are deciding for themselves every single day what they will do and how they will do it and who they will do it with and in what way they will do it. The people who are consciously making those decisions, either to go towards freedom or to go away from it, are the ones who are really controlling uh, the world. And until they realize that power, well, uh, then we'll just gonna, we're just going to stumble into the, the world that's being engineered for us. Now, James, uh, what are your views on cryptocurrencies in general and with regards to the identity of Satoshi Nakamoto specifically? <laughs> well, with regards to the identity of Satoshi, I, of course, do not have any privileged insider information. And I know there are people going around right now claiming to be Satoshi Nakamoto. I'll believe it when I see it, essentially, when uh, there is some of that... Uh, 
initial Satoshi Nak- Nakamoto funds being moved, transferred in full public view, then then we can believe it. But until such time, I will reserve uh, skepticism. Um, and of course, there's a lot of people who speculate that perhaps it was started by the NSA or the CIA or some some arm of the deep state. And well, again, I can't prove or disprove that thesis or that hypothesis. But I do know that if there is going to be um, some sort of economy um, of of freedom, of something outside of this system uh, that involves long-distance, non-personal transactions. It will have to involve something like a cryptocurrency uh, in the long run. Because, of course, the, the promise, the idea, the dream of the cryptocurrency is that it's, if not anonymous, at least pseudonymous and largely uncontrollable. There's no single point at which any transaction can be choked off. Um, and it bypasses the uh, the central banks. It's non-inflationary. There are a lot of things to be said for it. Of course, there are a lot of things, a lot of ways that that can go wrong. Obviously, uh, pseudonymity can be unmasked and people can be uh, personally identified. Um, um, miners, if, if someone gets 51% of the mining pool, they can basically take over a cryptocurrency. And all of these ways in which uh, things can be undermined should give us all pause for thought. And that's why I never put my all of my crypto uh, eggs in one basket. I'm not, I'm not a proponent for Bitcoin or or Bitcoin Cash or or any of the 18,000 other flavors of cryptocurrency that are on the market right now. I think it is a market process to decide what can and should be the ultimate survivor in all of this. And again, that's the thing that we have a direct and individual part that we can play in it. It is the things that we use and the things that we strive towards and the things that we uh, want to bring to fruition are the ways that we can direct um, what is happening. And uh, again, the people who are out there who are able to code and are able to create a cryptocurrency that actually does offer anonymity and actually does um, bypass the, uh, the the banking system altogether and all of this, the, the, the people who do that should be um, rewarded for what they're doing. And we should get, uh, pay our time and attention and energy towards that rather than um, simply... Uh, again, looking at the world as if it's a spectator sport and all we can do is passively watch it. No, we are part of the development of this. So I think there is a promise to cryptocurrency. I don't think it's been met yet, but I still hold out hope that it can be met at some point. And that's, I think, what we ultimately need to be striving towards if we're at all interested in achieving that kind of um, outside the central bank uh, economy. James, uh, how and why did big oil conquer the world is one of your most viewed um, videos thus far and it reached over half a million people and uh, it's obviously a very unique topic and some independent research behind it can you share with us a little bit about these two topics how and why that big oil conquered the world so how big oil conquered the world is a sort of mini documentary that I put together in 2015 talking about uh, the rise of the big oil um, as as an as an industry as a as a function of society almost um, but it goes well beyond what you might expect um, from that title it's not simply the old story that we all know about the the um, uh, the striking oil in Titusville and the development of uh, the standard oil although that obviously is a part of the story but it's about what the big oil tycoons did with the power um, that they gained from basically monopolizing the key energy resource of the 20th century. And so that talks about the way that big oil and the big oil players um, affected all, all sorts of things from the, uh, the, the big agri 
uh, development of big agra to um, biotechnology to um, the f- big pharma all of these are are related to big oil ultimately and the the, the same names and the same interests keep popping up um, rockefellers of course notably among them um, so that 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 was what how big oil conquered the world was about and i think it explored it in some interesting ways that got a lot of attention uh, the 2017 follow-up why big oil conquered the world is about where things are going from here because the interesting thing is we are moving towards, as we're being told on the nightly news uh, on a frequent basis now, we're moving towards the post-carbon society. Now we're beyond big oil and big oil is waning and yeah, I mean, there's still oil and oil geopolitics and things that go on, but we are moving towards this new economy that's going to be uh, about green technology or what have you. Um, the interesting part of that that uh, often gets excluded from that narrative is that, again, it is the same players, the same old big oil tycoons who are positioning themselves to essentially control this new uh, post-carbon economy. And the worst part about that is this post-carbon economy is going to be the very fruition of that technocratic globalist nightmare that we were talking about earlier, where Every single transaction, every interaction, everything you do will be controlled and surveilled and in real time processed, understood, um, and ultimately uh, either forbidden or allowed, depending on the whims of the the ruling oligarchy. That might sound like a really large and uh, maybe unbelievable statement to some people, but I would highly suggest you actually watch the documentary to see the way that I'm talking about that and the way that it's developing. Because uh, again, I think given the technologies that supposedly are going to free us from our dependency on oil and everything is going to be so great, uh, I think that there's very much a double-edged sword that comes with that, and that sword is being wielded to strike against the population and against freedom and privacy. And that's ultimately, again, I think part of the long-term plan of the big oil families, which never really cared about oil per se. I think they cared about the the wealth and the power, more importantly, that comes along with that wealth. And uh, if they can transition off of the oil economy onto a different economy that gives them even more power over the general population, you can bet your bottom dollar that they will do so. And I think that's exactly what's happening. James, last question. Is there a powerful family construct behind many of the world's events? And and if so, who are they? I mean, we've heard many um, many of the talks uh, over the years regarding either the uh, aristocracy of of, uh, uh, of the UK, meaning their their queen and and the royal family. We've heard about the Rothschilds, the Rockefellers. Is that all speculation? Is that real? How real is it? Uh, from what you've seen in your research with regards to some families having insane power? Well, you ask if there is a family um, dynasty, and I know you didn't mean it in this way, but of course I'd like to stipulate, well, no, I don't think there is a family, uh, ruling family. Uh, I think there are ruling families, yes, certainly. I think there are certainly um, um, people and families in which Uh, An incredible, almost unthinkable amount of wealth and power are concentrated, and some of the most, I think, well-known of those would, of course, include the Rothschilds and the Rockefellers and the the royal families. Um, And, of course, there has always been and continues to be uh, speculation, I think healthy speculation, that, well, if we know their name, they're probably not at the top of the power pyramid. The the real uh, controllers probably are people whose names you've never heard of by design. So I think that's, that's, again, speculation 
that needs to be um, more thoroughly fleshed out. And uh, uh, But I think the underlying point is that there is certainly immense amounts of power and wealth that are concentrated in the hands of a few ruling oligarchs. But I don't want that to become the simplistic you know, there are, you know, X number of families, they control the world, they dictate every single thing that happens in the world, and everything is going according to their plan, because I think that's kind of the comic book version of all of this that, again, I think has been implanted in us by popular culture entertainment, like comic books themselves and movies and other things that give us that extremely simplistic um, explanation. I think in reality, it's a much messier thing. I don't, I, in fact, I don't think it's the deep state, for example. I think there are deep states, uh, or at least warring factions within the deep state. And uh, there really are differences of opinion amongst different oligarchs that are seeking to influence and direct society this way and that. And I think that's another aspect of this that's important. I don't think there are people who literally control every single thing that happens in the world so much as there are people who are trying to steer the change that is just a natural part of existence. There is change happening in society at any given time. I think there are people who are trying to steer that in one way or another. And obviously with enough wealth and enough uh, geopolitical power, that can be done more or less easily. But still, I think there, uh, when we take it as just there are controlling families that control everything, again, that takes the agency out of anything we do. And all we are is just I guess, puppets to be puppeteered by the, the, the string pullers that we don't know and can't do anything about. And if that was my ideology, I would just, I guess, lay down and, and die because what's the point? Who cares if there's, there's, there's truly nothing we can do? No, we do have agency in helping to direct which way society will ultimately go. And I think that's where, that, that's where my interest more lies, more than trying to identify, oh, it is this family that controls everything because A, I, again, I don't quite believe it's that simplistic, but B, also, again, it takes the agency out of us. Our, we have a role to play in the development of the world, and it is, I think, a billion times better, more productive, and more effective for me to concentrate on, well, what can I be doing in my actual, really day-to-day -day life to actually help change maybe not change the world, but at least change my world for the better, if you understand uh, what I'm trying to say there. What can I be I, doing? I definitely I think that's the fundamental this, question. Yeah, and, and James, I couldn't agree with you more because, because uh, when I founded Wealth Research Group three years ago, it was because of my passion to reach a wider audience of people, uh, specifically investors and savers, and help them build a financial fortress of assets so that no government can ever screw with them and that they can live a, an amazing life right now. You don't have to wait till you're 65 and older to, to, uh, you know, to, to live a good life. You can do it right now and you can lead by example and uh, kind of lead the change in, in your own environment and that will trickle into a bigger uh, world picture. And I think what you're saying, that we have a lot of control is, is very true. Uh, in terms of my nutrition, my sleeping habits, um, where I choose to uh, uh, to spend my time, what I choose to do with it, um, what Even I choose what to, you choose to, to to concentrate on can be such a big exactly. part of that. Because when we are exactly. directing our time and energies towards something, that inevitably makes it bigger. If we spend all our time warring with 
you know, the deep state in whatever sense, then the deep state gets more power because it controls our minds in that sense. James, I couldn't agree with you and, more. And I'd just like to make the, the final point that I think, again, that is another point uh, in which we've been programmed by our cultural programming to expect that this is a battle where we are going into battle against some big dragon and we have to slay the dragon. How do you do that? Well, you cut off its head. So you have to, the, the way to win is to identify, to, to, to find the dragon, identify the head and cut it off and then everything will be better. That is comic book nonsense. That is not the way things work in the real world. And I, I think the real point is not to, to war against some system that's oppressing you. That isn't the point of this. It is to create a system that you want to exist in the world. That is the real way out of this. Not to try to spend all our time directing our energy toward the beast, but simply to take our energy away from the beast and to create our own table where we are doing our own thing and we don't have to worry about what the beast is doing. That is my vision of what ultimately the, the winning strategy looks like. Sure. And I, I couldn't agree more again. And that is evolution. Um, just evolving primarily on independently on your own personal initiative and systems and institutions and whatever it is, they, they simply have to falter because there's nothing to hold them anymore uh, like uh, like it did before. Um, James, I really want to thank you for taking the time to do this interview. And I want to ask you, where can people check out more of your work? My work is available for free at CorbettReport.com. That's C-O-R-B-E-T-T Report.com. There's 11 years worth of uh, interviews and videos and podcasts now. Literally thousands and thousands of hours of free audio and video. Uh, there, That's basically a research tool. I hope people will use it as such. And if it helps you in your research, please do consider subscribing to my website as little as $1 a month. James Corbett, thank you very much for taking the time. Thank you for having me.